Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. Folks, interesting topic today. Military tactics. Now, two of the greatest leaders in the study of warfare were Antoine Henry Jomini and Karl von Clausewitz. Now, Jomini was an officer in the French army during the time of Napoleon. He attained the rank of general, and in the remaining 54 years of his life, after the Napoleonic Wars, he served as a military consultant and scholar. Before his death in 1869, he had written 27 volumes on the wars with Frederick the Great, the French Revolution, and Napoleon. His greatest work was titled Summary of the Art of War. Now, Jomini said there were fundamental principles for successful war making, and that these principles are unaffected by time, place, and weaponry. He contended that these principles are applicable in any wartime situation. So he had four rules, and they were as follows. Number one, maneuver to bring the major part of your forces to bear on the enemy's decisive areas and communications. Number two, maneuver to bring your forces against only part of the enemy's forces. Number three, Maneuver to bring your major forces to bear upon the decisive area on the battlefield or of the enemy's lines. And number four, maneuver to bring your mass to bear swiftly and simultaneously. So the bottom line is he thought bring your army's weight to bear at the right time and the right place. Now, Jomini said your military should include maneuvering whereby your army can successfully dominate three sides of a rectangular zone held by your enemy. To Jomini, war was primarily a matter of maneuvering to gain territory in places, not a matter of annihilating the enemy's forces. Now, the other leading scholar in wartime tactics was Major General Karl von Clausewitz, born in 1780. Clausewitz was admitted to the Berlin War Academy for young officers and became the organizer of the Prussian Army. His major work was titled On War, published in 1831. Now, Clausewitz's first principle was that war is essentially an act of violence. Its outcome is not determined by specific calculation, but by immaterial and moral factors. He contended great leaders are a matter of insightful genius not following rules of effective strategy and tactics. 
The object of war, according to Clausewitz, is to compel your opponent by violent means to bend his will to yours. So the bottom line with Clausewitz was, destroy his armed forces, not seize territory or key locations. Just the opposite of Jomini. Now Clausewitz also argued that wars could be determined by political implications, although in most cases, wars are won by attacking the enemy's armed forces. In certain wars, he contended, public opinion can play a major role. Public opinion, put upon the government of the warring power, can cause that government to fold and surrender to its enemy. The Vietnam War and recently Afghanistan are good examples of this. The works of Jomini and Clausewitz became standard reading for America's service academies. The U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York, was established in 1802, and a handful of engineering officers and cadets were assigned to the post. Sixty-five of the original 89 graduates served during the War of 1812 and formally became members of the Army Corps of Engineers during that war. Now, West Point went on to become the premier military academy in the entire nation, and by 1846, it had graduated almost 1,000 cadets, and by 1860, more than 76% of U.S. Army officers were West Point graduates, all trained in the teachings of Jomini and Clausewitz. Now, with the military strategies of these two great military minds, tactics versus kill them all and let God sort them, I think we should look at which approach seems to work best. The French were in Indochina, Vietnam, long before we were, and warned us not to go there. Charles de Gaulle even wrote a letter to our president telling him, it's a mess. The Soviets were in Afghanistan for 10 years and were defeated by the Afghans, yet we went there as well. What did the North Vietnamese and the Afghans hold in common that allowed them to beat the most powerful militaries in the world? What it was, was a combination of the strategies of Jomini and the ruthlessness of Clausewitz. In other words, guerrilla warfare. Now, I found a really great article by a fellow by the name of Robert Longley. And he gave a lot of great information on guerrilla warfare. He started out by saying guerrilla warfare is waged by civilians who are not members of a traditional military union, such as a nation's standing army or police force. Now this type of warfare is typified by sabotage, ambushes, and surprise raids on unsuspecting military targets. Often fighting on their own homeland, guerrilla combatants use their familiarity with the local landscape and terrain to their advantage. Definitely a Jomini tactic. Guerrilla tactics are characterized by repeated surprise attacks and efforts to limit the movement of enemy troops. Again, Jomini. Guerrilla troops also use tactics of propaganda to recruit fighters and win the support of local population. Here again, we look back, and this is obviously Clausewitz. The use of guerrilla warfare was first suggested in the 6th century BC by Chinese general and strategist Sun Tzu in his classic book, The Art of War. 
In 217 BC, Roman dictator Quintus Maximus, often called the father of guerrilla warfare, used his strategy to defeat the mighty invading army of Carthaginian general Hannibal, again using guerrilla tactics. In the early 19th century, citizens of Spain and Portugal used guerrilla tactics to defeat Napoleon's superior French army in the Peninsular War. More recently, guerrilla fighters, led by people like Che Guevara, assisted Fidel Castro in overthrowing Cuban dictator Batista during the Cuban Revolution of 1952. Now, largely due to its use by leaders like Mao Zedong in China and Ho Chi Minh in North Vietnam, guerrilla warfare is generally thought of in the West as only a tactic of communism. However, history has shown this to be a misconception, as a multitude of political and social factors have motivated citizen soldiers. Now, guerrilla warfare is generally considered a war motivated by politics, a desperate struggle of common people to right the wrongs done to them by an oppressive regime that rules by military force and intimidation. All you have to do is look at the Civil War in Missouri and the campaigns of Missouri guerrillas like William Clark Quantrell, Bloody Bill Anderson, and the James Boys, and the Younger Brothers. Why were they so successful against 80,000 Union troops here in Missouri? Think about it. Guerrilla warfare. Now, when asked what motivates guerrilla warfare, Cuban revolution leader Che Guevara gave this famous response. Why does the guerrilla fighter fight? We must come to the inevitable conclusion that the guerrilla fighter is a social reformer, that he takes up arms responding to the angry protest of the people against their oppressors, and that he fights in order to change the social system that keeps all his unarmed brothers in misery. History, however, has shown that public perception of guerrillas as heroes or villains depends on their tactics and motivations. While many guerrillas have fought to secure basic human rights, some have initiated unjustified violence, even using terrorist tactics against other civilians who refused to join their cause. For example, in Northern Ireland during the 1960s, a civilian group calling itself the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, conducted a series of attacks against British security forces and public establishments in the country as well as Irish citizens who they believed to be loyal to British Crown. Characterized by tactics such as indiscriminate bombings, often taking the lives of uninvolved citizens, the IRA attacks were described as acts of terrorism by both the media and the British government. Guerrilla organizations run the gambit from small localized groups to regionally dispersed regiments of thousands of well-trained fighters. The group's leaders typically express clear political goals. Along with strict military units, many guerrilla groups also have political wings assigned to develop and distribute propaganda for recruiting new fighters and winning the support of the local civilian population. Now, in his 6th century book, The Art of War, Chinese General Sun Tzu summarized the tactics of guerrilla warfare. He said, Know when to fight and when not to fight. 
Avoid what is strong and strike what is weak. Know how to deceive the enemy. Appear weak when you are strong and strong when you are weak. Now, reflecting on General Sue's teachings, guerrilla fighters use small and fast-moving units to launch repeated surprise hit-and-run attacks, again, hearkening back to the teachings of Jomini. The goal of these attacks is to destabilize and demoralize the larger enemy force while minimizing your own casualties. In addition, some guerrilla groups hope that the frequency and nature of their attacks will provoke their enemy to carry out counterattacks so excessively brutal that they inspire support for the rebel cause. Now, facing overwhelming disadvantages in manpower and military hardware, the ultimate goal of guerrilla tactics is typically the eventual withdrawal of the enemy army, rather than its total surrender. Did we not just see that? in Afghanistan, twice under the Soviets, and also now with the Americans pulling out? Guerrilla fighters often attempt to limit the movement of enemy troops, weapons, and supplies by attacking enemy supply line facilities like bridges and railroads and airfields. You can't take on a tank or an A-10 fighter with a deer rifle, but you can attack the fuel depot and the supply lines that provide logistics for these weapons. In an effort to blend in with the local population, guerrilla fighters rarely wear uniforms or identifying insignia. This tactic of stealth helps them utilize the element of surprise in their attacks. Now, dependent on the local population for support, guerrilla forces employ both military and political arms. The political arm of a guerrilla group specializes in the creation and dissemination of propaganda intended not only to recruit new fighters, but also win the hearts and minds of the people. While they both employ many of the same tactics and weapons, there are important differences between guerrilla fighters and terrorists. Most importantly, terrorists rarely attack defended military targets. Instead, Terrorists usually attack so-called soft targets, such as civilian aircraft, schools, churches, and other places of public assembly. The September 11, 2001 attacks in the United States and the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing are examples of terrorist attacks. Unlike terrorists, guerrilla fighters rarely attack civilians. In contrast to terrorists, guerrillas move and fight as paramilitary units with the objective of seizing territory and enemy equipment. Throughout history, evolving cultural ideologies such as liberty, equality, nationalism, socialism, and religious fundamentalism have motivated groups of people to employ guerrilla warfare tactics in efforts to overcome real or imagined oppression and persecution at the hands of a ruling government or foreign invaders. Now, while many battles of the American Revolution were fought between conventional armies, civilian American patriots often used guerrilla tactics to disrupt the activities of the larger, better-equipped British Army. In the Revolution's opening skirmish, the battles of Lexington and Concord 
on April 19, 1775. A loosely organized militia of colonial American civilians, just farmers if you will, used guerrilla warfare tactics in driving back the British army. We hid behind trees and rocks and refused to line up opposite the enemy on the battlefield. This drove the British crazy. Unsportsmanlike conduct. American General George Washington often used local guerrilla militias in support of his Continental Army and utilized unconventional guerrilla tactics such as spying and sniping. Now in the final stages of the war, a South Carolina citizen militia, led by none other than Francis Marion, the famous Swamp Fox, used guerrilla tactics to drive British commanding general Lord Cornwallis out of the Carolinas and off to his ultimate defeat in the Battle of Yorktown in Virginia. In modern times, we have seen the effectiveness of guerrilla tactics. In late 1979, the military of the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in an effort to support the communist Afghan government in its long-running battle with the anti-communist Muslim guerrillas. Known as the Mujahideen, the Afghan guerrillas were a collection of local tribesmen who initially fought the Soviet troops from horseback with obsolete World War I rifles and sabers. One would think they wouldn't stand a chance. Now think about that. World War I rifles and horses against the Soviets, the second most powerful army and air force on the planet at the time. The conflict escalated into a decades-long proxy war when the United States finally came in and started supplying the guerrillas with modern weapons, including advanced anti-tank and anti-aircraft guided missiles. And over the next 10 years, the guerrillas used their U.S.-supplied weapons and superior knowledge of the rugged Afghan territory to inflict ever more costly damage on the far larger and better equipped Soviet army. Already dealing with a deepening economic crisis at home, the Soviet Union finally withdrew its troops from Afghanistan in 1989. Well, the guerrillas now took control of Afghanistan and formed, yes folks, the Taliban government. Think about that. We're the ones that supplied them with the equipment that they then took over the country with. Now with recent events, we know the rest of that story. So folks, what should we have learned from this whole Afghanistan mess is that the guerrilla tactics work if we didn't learn anything else. Lacking the numerical strength and weapons to oppose a regular army in the field, guerrillas avoid pitched battles. Instead, they operate from bases established in remote and inaccessible terrain, such as forests and mountains and jungles, and depend on the support of the local inhabitants for recruits, food, shelter, and, yes, information. Guerrillas may also receive assistance in the form of arms, medical supplies, and military advisors from their own or allied regular armies. The tactics of guerrilla warfare are those of harassment. Strike swiftly and unexpectedly. They raid enemy supply depots and installations, ambush patrols and supply convoys, and cut communication lines, hoping thereby to disrupt enemy activities and to capture equipment and supplies for their own use. 
because of their mobility, the dispersal of their forces into small groups, and their ability to disappear among the civilian population, guerrillas are extremely difficult to capture. ISIS in the Middle East, Hamas in Lebanon, the Chechens in Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. The list goes on and on, folks. What should we have learned from our recent conflicts in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world? It does not take a huge army and massive weapons to win a war. Guerrilla tactics work. Maybe, just maybe, we should start studying our history before we can become more involved in the next conflict. Now, folks, I know a lot of what you guys are thinking is, well, none of that could ever happen here. With all the turmoil we're seeing in the USA today, watching our country becoming more divided every day, I think we need to step back and take a look at what's really happening and why would people choose to go the route of guerrilla warfare. Now, to do so, I want to share the works of a 19th century philosopher. Why? What if I told you that Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini read this guy's books and used his observations to become the most powerful dictators of the 20th century? The nature of crowds has long been a topic of interest in philosophy. However, the 18th and 19th centuries were a time when an increased emphasis was placed on understanding the psychology that went into crowds. For example, the 18th century philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau proclaimed that we have a very imperfect knowledge of the human heart if we do not also examine that same heart in crowds. Well, this brings us to Gustave Le Bon, L-E-B-O-N, who lived from 1841 to 1931, a French social psychologist, and he's often seen as the father of the study of crowd psychology. Now, Le Bon believed an understanding of crowd psychology was essential for a proper understanding of both the history and the nature of man. As he wrote in his classic and highly influential work, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. In it, he says it is crowds rather than isolated individuals that may be induced to run the risk of death to secure the triumph of a creed or an idea that may be fired with enthusiasm for glory and honor. Such heroism is without doubt somewhat unconscious, but it is of such heroism that history is made. I think this is what we're seeing in America today. What is a crowd? Laban defined a crowd as a group of individuals united by a common idea, belief, or ideology. The idea which unites a crowd is not chosen by a process of clear reasoning and examination of evidence. Instead, as we'll discuss in more detail later, crowds accept beliefs and ideas superficially and utilize them as fuel for revolutionary action. When an individual becomes part of a crowd, according to Le Bon, he undergoes a profound psychological transformation. That is, he ceases to operate as an individual. He's no longer himself, but has become an automaton, who has ceased to be guided by his will, according to Le Bon. Now, do you really believe that everyone you see at BLM, Antifa, far-right rallies really knows why they're protesting? 
Or is it something else that drives them? This is where Laban's work becomes fascinating. In a crowd, an individual no longer lives for himself, but instead becomes a pawn who sacrifices his own personal ends and goals in favor of those of the crowd. In a crowd, everyone's sediment and act is contagious, and contagious to such a degree that an individual readily sacrifices his personal interest to the collective interest, again according to Laban. Now, Laban maintained that a crowd forms when an influential idea unites a number of individuals and propels them to act towards a common goal. These influential ideas, however, are never created by members of the crowd. Instead, they're brought into the world by the minds of great individuals. Since those who compose a crowd are by their very nature mediocre, they're incapable of understanding these ideas in their original form. Therefore, in order for an idea to unite and influence a crowd, it must first be thoroughly simplified. Laban goes on to say, ideas being only accessible to crowds after having assumed a very simple shape must often undergo the most thoroughgoing transformations to become popular. It's especially when we are dealing with somewhat lofty philosophical and scientific ideas that we see how far-reaching are the modifications they will require in order to lower them to the level of the intelligence of crowds. However great or true any idea may have been to begin with, it is deprived of almost all that which constituted its elevation and its greatness by the mere fact that it has come within the intellectual range of crowds and exerts an influence upon them. In other words, simplify BLM to systemic racism, Antifa to a government out of control, etc. For example, a great philosopher could praise the nature of liberty in an 800-page masterpiece. However, the crowd, incapable of comprehending such thoughts, would require the concept of liberty to be thoroughly simplified in order for it to stimulate revolutionary action. Laban proposed that this is where leaders come in. For it is the leader of a crowd who communicates simplified ideas to the crowd and in doing so unites it together and stimulates it to act. Hitler and Mussolini were masters of this method. The majority of men, especially among the masses, do not possess clear and reasoned ideas on any subject whatever outside their own specialty. The leader serves them as a guide, says Lebon. In the modern day, one can see how invigorated and rejuvenated crowds become when they hear a leader pronounce that a cause is being fought in the name of freedom, peace, or prosperity. Once these words are proclaimed, and the members of the crowd nod their heads in blind obedience to whatever else follows from the leader's mouth, completely ignorant as to the corrupt purposes that may be the true guide for the leader's actions. How numerous are the crowds that have heroically faced death for beliefs, ideas, and phrases that they scarcely understood, says Laban in his book. Referring to the ideas which leaders manipulate in order to govern and control crowds, Laban went on to say, By many they are considered as natural forces, as supernatural powers. They evoke grandiose and vague images in men's minds. But this very vagueness 
that wraps them in obscurity augments their mysterious power. Now, while crowds are capable of acts which achieve both good and evil, Laban believed that more often than not, crowds commit barbarous and immoral actions. Now, why do crowds so often act in an immoral manner? Laban explains this as well. By saying, our savage destructive instincts are the inheritance left dormant in all of us from the primitive ages. In the life of the isolated individual, it would be dangerous for him to gratify these instincts, while his absorption in an irresponsible crowd, on the other hand, in which the consequences he is assured of impunity gives him entire liberty to follow them. The 20th century psychologist Carl Jung reiterated this same idea. If people crowd together and form a mob, then the dynamisms of the collective man are let loose, beasts or demons that lie dormant in every person until he's part of a mob. Man in the mass sinks unconsciously to an inferior moral and intellectual level, to that level which is always there, below the threshold of consciousness, ready to break forth as soon as it is activated by the formation of a mass. Nonetheless, Laban believed and understood what motivated individuals in a crowd. When an individual lives his life as an individual, that is, when he is forced to take responsibility for his life, he's apt to feel a crushing burden and sense of impotence he can't seem to shake. In joining a crowd or a mass movement, the individual is temporarily relieved of this responsibility and sense of impotence, and comes to feel that he is capable of shaking the foundations of the earth. Lamont stated that in crowds the foolish, ignorant, and envious persons are freed from the sense of their insignificance and powerlessness and are possessed instead by the notion of brutal and temporary but immense strength. Lamont thought that we are all in a sense a part of a crowd as we are all motivated by ideas and ideologies which are socialized into us and via communal action unite us with others in our culture. So bottom line to all this, many of our actions are motivated by ideas, beliefs, and ideologies, which we do not understand. What we're seeing today, folks, is the effect of a small group of powerful leaders who have seen the benefit throughout history of using crowd psychology as a force to bring about change in whatever direction they want it to go. So think about it, folks. Before you join a movement, ask yourself, would I do as an individual what I'm doing as a member of a crowd? Do I really know what I'm fighting for? Who is behind the movement, and what is their end game? Laban saw this and wisely claimed, the tyranny exercised unconsciously on men's minds is the only real tyranny, because it cannot be fought against. Think about that, folks. Until next time. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley. See you next time.